Hi, good day and welcome to About Patterson, a podcast about the past, present, and future of our hometown, Patterson, New Jersey. As all Pattersonians know, Patterson was founded by our first Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, in 1791. Hamilton's vision for Patterson was as America's first planned industrial city, but even Hamilton couldn't have seen what Patterson would become. Patterson led the Industrial Revolution where Sam Colt manufactured his first revolvers, John Ryle manufactured America's first silk, Thomas Rogers built the first American locomotives, and John Holland tested the world's first modern submarine. But Patterson isn't just about the Industrial Revolution, it's about us, the people of Patterson. It's about our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents who came to America and settled in Patterson for a better life. We all know Patterson today isn't the Patterson we grew up in, but something is happening that no one saw coming. After decades of decline, a miracle happened. Two Pattersonians, former Mayor Bill Pascrell in the House of Representatives and Frank Lautenberg in the United States Senate, passed a bill that was signed by President Barack Obama, making our Great Falls District a national park, and in my view, changed Patterson's future for the better. This is a podcast about Patterson, the historic Patterson we learned about, the Patterson we grew up in, and the Patterson that, in my opinion, is emerging from the ashes. So thanks so much for joining me today. Welcome, and thanks for joining me today for the final episode, part six of Reuben Carter, John Artis, and the Lafayette Grill Murders, Just the Facts. Today we're going to discuss the final chapter what I title, Enter the Canadians. At the first trial, what convinced convicted Carter and Artis was the testimony of two eyewitnesses who identified Carter at the scene of the triple homicide, Alfred Bellow and Dexter Bradley, as well as the two people who identified the getaway car parked outside the grill at precisely 2.30 a.m. as a white Dodge Polara with out-of-state plates. There's also the two officers who stopped the car just a few blocks from the Lafayette Grill about four or five minutes later, and other corroborating testimony. It was the same witnesses who who convicted both men at the second trial. One thing I find interesting is that all those celebrities disappeared after the second trial. This happened for one big reason. Reuben Carter's nearly beating to death of a personal friend of Muhammad Ali Carolyn Kelly. You'll remember that Mrs. Kelly was a Muslim woman living in Newark, New Jersey. She was recruited by the heavyweight champion to help with the fundraising for the legal fees to free Carter and Artis. On April 30, 1976, Carter and Carolyn Kelly were staying in separate rooms at the Ramada Inn in Annapolis, Maryland for the Muhammad Ali-Jimmy Young fight. Mrs. Kelly had a question about her hotel bill, called Carter on the phone to ask him about it. He cursed her out, so she went to his room where he blocked her exit and punched the 61-year-old woman until she fell to the floor where he kicked her, jumped on top of her, and began to strangle her. Mrs. Kelly was in traction in the hospital for a month. Of course, I wasn't there, but I believe when this circulated among Carter's supporters, they realized who Carter really was, a man capable of murder. By the time the second trial was over and Carter and Artis were convicted again, those supporters disappeared. 
I understand that Bob Dylan never performed his song Hurricane again. So Carter and Artis were returned to prison in 1976 to serve out their sentences. Artis would be paroled in a few years. It appeared that the Carter myth was dead and buried. Then, in 1980, a young 15-year-old African-American boy named Lezra Martin read Carter's book, The Sixteenth Round. Lezra was a member of a commune in Canada led by three Canadians, Lisa Peters, Sam Chaiten, and Terry Swinton. Lezra's enthusiasm of the book spread throughout the commune, and soon they encouraged Lezra to write a letter to Carter. And two weeks later, they heard back. Carter had found a new group who believed blacks were persecuted in the United States and believed Carter's persecution story. Of all the Canadians, Lisa Peters became obsessed with Carter's case and often spent hours with him on the phone. In 1983, several Canadians, led by Peters, moved to the United States and offered Carter's lawyers their help. Carter told them all the usual lies, that he had been a paratrooper in the Army, that he was a member of the Rangers. The Canadians bought the stories hook, line, and sinker, never corroborating a a single thing. In 1991, they published a book, Lazarus and the Hurricane, and the book and the 1999 movie Hurricane relied heavily on these two sources. As to the movie Hurricane, I have to admit that I have considered watching it, but can't seem to bring myself to do it. The whole point of this look at the Carter artist case is to learn from myself what the truth is. The movie is so fictionalized that there's nothing to learn from it. In 1984, the Canadians were living in New Jersey, assisting the Carter artist lawyers. Then Carter got another big break, if you can consider 19 years in prison lucky. A judge by the name of Lee Sorokin was assigned to hear the new appeal. Judge Lee Sorokin was a self-described flaming liberal, criminal-friendly judge who had once been removed from a case for destroying any appearance of impartiality. This judge would become a godsend for the defense. After hearing both sides, Sorokin set aside the verdict, stating the motive the prosecution had presented in the second trial should not have been admitted as evidence. Remember the prosecution offered the motive of the killing of the black bar owner by the former owner, a white man. The prosecution suggested that through a mutual friend, the nephew of the black bar owner, Carter and Artis murdered the three white people at the Lafayette Grill. So because of Sorokin's decision, Carter and uh, Artis were both released their convictions were set aside. Prosecutors would have to prosecute Carter and Artis a third time. Artis had won parole in 1981, meaning he would not be returned to prison even if he was reconvicted. The prosecutors were left with two options. They could either try the case a third time or dismiss the indictment altogether. The issue with a third trial was with the witnesses who convicted Carter and Artis twice. Patricia Valentine, who testified at both previous trials, had left the state. She had made it clear she did not want to testify again. Lead detective Vincent D. Simone had died in 1979. 
Alfred Bellow's criminal history had gotten 20 years longer. The prosecutor's office filed a motion asking that the three counts of murder against Carter and Artis be dismissed, and New Jersey's longest criminal case was over. In the end, neither Carter nor Artis were acquitted or declared not guilty, and neither man was exonerated. Two of the Canadians, Sam Chayton and Terry Swinton, published the book Lazarus and the Hurricane in 1991 in an attempt to recoup some of the estimated $1 million they invested in the case. Some of what was in the book was used in the film Hurricane. The book and the movie actually changed the time of the triple homicide from 2.30 to 2.45, alleging forgery by the lead detective. The book and the movie fabricated a cab driver who would claim Carter was at the night spot at the 2.30 time of the murders. This is completely false. The book and the movie fabricated additional eyewitnesses at the scene of the crime, identifying men other than Carter and Artis. It wasn't long after Cardis's release that they learned Carter wasn't the next Malcolm X. In time, the Canadians learned he was a violent sociopathic alcoholic who put fear in those around him. This had started, if you remember, with his own family when he was a very young man. The so-called Carter myth has been made into books, movies, and news stories. There's an old journalist creed that says, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Today's journalists, as they call themselves, check out next to nothing. Those myths even made into both Carter's and Artis's obituaries. Reuben Hurricane Carter and John Artis were convicted by two juries of the triple homicide at the Lafayette Grill on June 17, 1966. Patricia Graham Valentine and Ronald Ruggiero testified in the trials of 1967 and again in 1976 and identified the getaway car that the two Negro shooters got into. Alfred Bellow and Dexter Bradley identified Carter and Artis as the two men who exited the Lafayette Grill seconds after the gunfire. Two Patterson officers stopped the same car containing Artis and Carter less than 10 minutes after the police were called reporting the incident. When Carter and Artis and the White Dodge returned to the grill, Valentine, Bello, and Ruggiero identified the car to the police. And yet the Carter myth is alive and well. Those who didn't fall for it are the victims' families. And the juries that convicted them, as well as the judges and prosecutors, are convinced that the perpetrators of this horrible crime were rightly convicted. For those of us who say there are questions about the guilt of Carter and Artis, I say there will always be questions. But questions are not evidence. Juries rely on evidence, and the evidence convicted these two men twice. Thanks for joining me today in this final episode of Reuben Hurricane Carter, John Artis, and the Lafayette Grill Murders, Just the Facts. Thanks again. See you next week.